Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today I'm going to tell you the story of inflation futures. Inflation futures actually has a fairly long and storied history. The idea of of a contract uh, on on inflation or on the price level, uh, but what's the salient point about the story is how it ends, and and how it ends in in just a very tragic, tragic way. And I, I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give away the ending just yet. You'll have to listen. <clears throat> but the story of of inflation futures actually starts back in the mid-1800s when Stanley Jevons, uh, who was an economist, before we called them economists, uh, came up with an idea that Alfred Marshall, another economist, somewhat later uh, in the 1800s, described as uh, tabular standards. Um, and, and many years later, Friedman pointed out that, that what those two gentlemen were talking about was effectively the same as an inflation futures or inflation forward contract. And to some extent, we sort of have what they were talking about uh, in inflation swaps, because of course, back then there were no swap markets, there were no futures markets per se in the way we think of them today. There were, you know, everything was over the counter. And, uh, and so, whether or not it's a futures contract collateralized in a particular way or a bilateral swap contract is sort of immaterial. But the modern history of inflation futures dates back to 1973 when Lovell and Vogel uh, wrote an article in the Journal of Political Economy called A CPI Futures Market. So very directly calling it an inflation futures market. And so this is in the 70s, and there were some more things written over the course of the 70s, which, of course, is interesting because in 1973, uh, in the early 70s, what was happening? Well, inflation was starting to get high, get disturbing. And one of the things they said in that article was, uh, and, and I'm going to quote, I really should do a different voice for the quote because you can't see the air quotes uh, on a podcast. But anyway, they, they said, uh, if governments cannot control inflation – Consumers must learn to live with it. But the task of adapting to the uncertainties of inflation could be eased by the development of appropriate forward markets. What they proposed was a contract that was effectively based on the price level, that if it it had a value of 100 today and you had... 5% 5% inflation, then it would be 105 next year. And you can sort of thinking, think of that as being the CPI index itself, whatever the, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics number for the price level was essentially what they were talking about as a contract that settles to, to that kind of number. Uh, in 1978, Kurt Dew suggested that suggested CPI futures while he was uh, in a paper where he was discussing the idea, which was novel at the time, for a futures contract on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Obviously, nowadays, we have lots of equity futures, um, but at the time, that was a fairly unique idea, and uh, and he wrapped up CPI futures as part of that discussion. 1980, there was an, ar- 1980, there was an article by a man named Edrington 
1983, we started to get the Nobel Prize winners involved. Uh, Samuelson, <clears throat> Paul Samuelson, wrote a, uh, a brochure, really almost a leaflet, for the Coffee, Sugar, Cocoa Exchange, the CSCE, uh, about inflation futures. And, and the next year, uh, Milton Friedman discussed and noted the idea of, of CPI futures. And again, as I said earlier, talked about Jevons and Marshall and, and tabular standards. And so, you know, it's the early 80s. You know, that's when around, I think it was 83 or thereabouts when the uh, the crude oil futures contract got started. So all the big futures markets were really starting to develop. And so, you know, the idea of of financial futures as opposed to just commodity futures were starting, it was starting to get credence. And, and obviously, when you get Nobel Prize winners talking about this, it means it, it's getting some, uh, uh, some respect. Um, and in fact, in 1985, and a lot of people don't know this, um, but the, the Coffee, Sugar, Cocoa Exchange, CSCE, did launch a CPI futures contract. And it was indexed to the CPI for urban wage earners, what we call the CPIW today. Uh, urban wage earners and clerical workers. And they listed three years, and it was sort of in that price index form, the same the same basic form that um, of tabular standards that had sort of originally been proposed and uh, and that Lovell and Vogel had proposed. And they had a three year curve. so you could trade the price level three years out. Contract didn't last very long. It was delisted. You know, it was still very early for financial futures, and uh, you know, people didn't know how to trade it, and it didn't last very long. And and so then it sort of the idea d- died for a while. Now again, you know, if you sort of think about the time period, we started talking about it in '73 when inflation started to go up, and then inflation by '85 when this contract got listed was sort of on its way down, and. And the idea really basically died until the the Treasury issued tips in, in 1997. And at about the same time that the Treasury issued tips, uh, the, uh, the Chicago Board of Trade listed futures on tips. And so for those of you who don't necessarily uh, know the, uh, the, the alphabet soup that is the exchanges, the Chicago Board of Trade is where you trade uh, these days, you trade bond futures and note futures. They tend to be deliverable contracts where if you have, if you are short a note futures contract, uh, you have to deliver, when it expires, you have to deliver one of a small basket of, uh, of actually treasure, of treasury notes. Um, and so, the, the, the TIPS futures contracts were designed in that way, and there was a five-year contract and a 10-year TIPS contract. Uh, and then in 1998, they added a 30-year contract. And they didn't really trade a whole lot. They were delisted in 2001. And one of the problems that they had is that there weren't any deliverables. You know, this was right after the Treasury started issuing TIPS, and it wasn't very exciting to a lot of people to be trading a futures contract on something which was exactly one bond that was out there. And in fact, sometimes zero bonds. The five-year TIPS contract, when the Board of Trade listed it, they listed a five-year TIPS contract in 97, as I said, and not only was the Treasury not issuing five-year TIPS at the time, they had no plans to do it. 
And so it was never very clear what exactly you're trading when you trade a five-year TIPS contract when there's no underlying instrument involved. And so not terribly surprisingly, the, the contract ended up uh, failing. <clears throat> so now comes my part in the story. And, and one of the reasons this story is near and dear to my heart is because I played a role in this. When I really got involved in inflation derivatives, I'd, I'd been sort of around the birth of tips when they came around, but I really got involved in inflation derivatives when I was at Barclays and they sort of asked me to, to start the, the U.S. inflation derivatives market. And that was in, in 2003. And, and one of the first things I did, um, there really wasn't a swaps market at all, but one of the first things I did, I had a background in, in futures and futures strategy. Um, but I, I went to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and I said, you guys should launch uh, an inflation futures contract. And, and, in, and in a second, I'll talk about why, it was, why I thought that was important to do. But um, you know, I, I sort of felt that if we were going to get the inflation ecosystem to work right and be liquid, that we needed to have some futures contracts out there um, and, and in particular, a CPI futures contract, even more than a TIPS contract. And, um, and so, you know, I went to them and I said, we really should launch these things. And I said, um, and here's where I made a, a colossal mistake because I didn't really know this history yet. Uh, I said, you know, we should make them look like something that people already know. We should make them look like Euro dollars. And which means that we should make them trade on a three-month annualized inflation rate and subtract that from 100 so that they look like price, just like Eurodollar futures. Let's make them familiar. And the problem is that that's not the way people, <laughs> that's not the way that tips trade, that's not the way inflation derivatives trade, it's not the way, you know, anything in inflation trades. Um, but we listed them out quarterly for three years, um, and uh, there was one market maker, which was me, there was supposed to be two originally. BNP was supposed to be a the, the French bank was supposed to be a market maker, but they pulled out at the last moment. So it was just me making markets in the thing, um, and um, and the weird structure. One market maker, you know, it traded a little bit. Um, at the time, it was very difficult for a market maker because I was I was an inflation derivatives trader. I was a rates trader. And the best way to hedge those futures turned out to be using gasoline futures. But gasoline futures are commodity futures, and they're traded in a different part of the bank. And back then, it didn't, banks didn't let the inflation guys trade gasoline because that was a commodity. Um, that's all changed now. But at the time, it was very, very difficult to, to make markets in these, in these contracts, even when there was any interest in trading them, which... You know, there wasn't very much. But still, it was better than the 1985 contract. It did better than the TIPS futures. But it did eventually, uh, it did eventually die. Um, the CME, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, um, later tried to do year-on-year -year futures so that it, the, the contracts settled to the, the one-year inflation rate. So, you know... In February, you would settle to whatever the the, the one-year inflation rate ending in February is. And 
this is the way we talk about inflation a lot. You know, the most recent number was 8.7% or whatever. Um, but they listed them monthly out one year, but looking back a year. And so it was, unfortunately, that's a, a structure that's very useful for derivatives traders and almost nobody else. One of the things about inflation futures is that if you are an investor and let's just say the present period accepted, you don't generally care about one-year inflation. You care about five-year inflation, 10-year inflation, because it's over a long period of time is, is, is when inflation really beats you up. Inflation, two months from now, we have a pretty good view of what it's going to be. And back when inflation was low and stable, which is when we were talking about all these things, you know, inflation was at 2%, and how bad could it be in one year? 3%, 4%? And so it wasn't, that's not the part you were concerned about. You were com concerned about, well, what if it goes to 4% for the next six years? Okay, so that's a problem. And that, and the, the futures, when they were constructed that way, and they only went out one year, they were not terribly useful. Uh, so, so that died. Um, and that's it. And this is where the real tragedy of the whole story is. Today, there, is, there are no inflation futures. Um, there's a good inflation swaps market. Uh, inflation-linked bonds are um, trillions of them outstanding. Uh, but there are no inflation futures. Why do they matter? Why do I care why do I think that it is a tragedy that, that, that there are no futures, CPI futures out there? Well, in mature markets, and this was what I originally said when I went to the CME in 2003 and they launched the contract in 2004, when I, when I originally went to them, I said, look, if you look around at all of the mature markets and we want inflation to be a mature market, they all have three legs of the liquidity stool. They all have cash markets. OTC, over-the-counter derivative swap markets, and they have exchange-traded markets. So if you think about bonds, so bonds have, obviously, you can trade cash bonds. You can trade over-the-counter bonds. You can trade swaps, okay? That's the over-the-counter rates equivalent. And obviously, there are lots of ways to trade bonds and, and interest rates in an exchange-traded sense. Stocks, you can trade stocks outright. You can trade them in all kinds of various uh, swaps and options and things over the counter. And there are, are uh, equity futures in, uh, in a variety of shapes. Foreign exchange, a lot of commodities, gold, for example, there are all good, liquid, healthy markets have three legs of the liquidity stool and not two. Why not two? Well, if you have two markets, say cash and, and futures, let's just say, then you have two ways that liquidity can flow between those markets. An arbitrageur can think cash is out of, who thinks cash is out of whack, can you know, buy cash and sell, sell the futures or, or sell cash and buy the futures. So there's two ways that liquidity can go between those two things. If you add a third contract, you now you don't have three ways, you have six ways. You know, A to B, A to C, B to A, B to C, C to A, C to B. So you have six different ways that you can have liquidity transmit 
through those markets. And so that creates, by a network effect, it creates more liquidity. When, one, when it dries up in one place, you can borrow it from another, from another place. When I was an options trader, a lot of the times, if you needed to go and, you know, you, you did a trade, you, you sold somebody a, a call or a put, and you, you need to go put on the delta, sometimes, depending on the size of the trade, the way to put, the most efficient way to put on the delta wasn't to go into that market and just buy a billion of something. Um, sometimes that's not a good way to do it. Sometimes it's better to to do the trade in futures instead of cash, or some in cash, some in futures, some in swaps, and then and then work around the basis till you get to the position you want by borrowing liquidity in a couple of different markets. So it's important to have the third leg of that stool. And we don't, and as a consequence, tips are not as liquid as they otherwise would be. There's trillions of them out there, but there are still days, and, frac- and frankly, the last couple of weeks have been this way, where suddenly the market gets thin and illiquid, and the thing moves around a whole lot. And the inflation derivatives market, great market, love the people who trade it. But again, you know, they have to lean on tips. There's nothing else to lean on. And I really do believe if we added inflation futures, if we added CPI futures and potentially tips futures, there are some other problems, some technical problems with that. But if we added the, you know, tips futures as well, might as well see what happens. Um, then I think you'd have a much, much healthier market. Um, where are we now in, in sort of this, this situation? As I said, you know, we, we listed those last futures in 2004. They lasted a couple of years. Um, I left Barclays where I was the market maker, and, and after that, it, it's, it died after that. Um, in 2012 or so, uh, after I had left the street, I got together with a couple of other people who were interested in this, and we approached the CME again with a new spec. Again, the, 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 the spec that I proposed in 2004 was just not a very good structure, and the one they followed it up with was not a very good structure. Um, and so in 2012, what we approached them with was something which was very, very similar to the original coffee, sugar, cocoa exchange spec, or the you know, Vogel, Lovell and Vogel spec. It's essentially a contract on the price level. And, and the reason this now makes much more sense is partly I'm smarter than I was, but it, when we first were talking about those other futures, the swaps market really didn't exist in the United States at all. And we didn't know what it was going to look like. Now we know what it looks like. And it turns out that when you trade an inflation swap, we, we phrase it like a rate, but what you're really doing is you're trading a forward price level. So if you put that into a futures contract, um, and, and I actually, we actually calculate, by the way, um, um, we sort of calculate daily where various futures contracts would be if there were futures contracts based on this and based on where inflation swaps are and so on. Um, but, a, but a swap is a, is a lot like, it turns out to be trading the, a forward price level. And so by making futures like that, then you can list them out quite a ways. And in fact, our proposal was list them monthly for the first year. That'll help the derivatives guys who need to be able to do resets and stuff. And then you basically follow something like what the 
what we do in oil, you know, do monthly for a while and then do quarterly for a year or two and then do annual, do a trade of December contract out for 10 years. And because there's liquidity in the tips market for 10 years and because there's liquidity in the inflation swaps market for 10 years, there's no reason there should not be, there could not be liquidity in a futures contract for 10 years. So at the time in 2012, we went and talked to the CME. I wrote a paper. I presented it at the AEA. I, um, we had lined up a couple of market makers. We had talked to a lot of people who agreed that the spec was the right way to do it. We also had a tip spec that there was some debate on, as I said, but but it was pretty, you know, we, we got to a place we were pretty happy with it. And the CME passed. Now, I understand they had had a couple of failures. We'd had a couple of false starts with it. But in the old days, futures exchanges were much more cowboy-like. You know, they'd they'd throw anything up on the board and see if people traded it. I mean, weather futures, when people first proposed weather futures, it was a silly idea. Who in the world are gonna, is going to trade heating degree days? Well, guess what? They do. <laughs> but you never would have known that. The whole idea made no sense. But they put it up there and people traded it and, and here we are. And, uh, and that's the way these exchanges used to work. Now they're very, very corporate and they don't want to be listing something that fails. It makes them feel really bad. Even though it costs them next to nothing to list something, now, now it does cost them something in, in, in some way. So the, the Merck passed. I've talked to them a couple of times since then and they always just seem uninterested. I have not spoken to them since inflation really started spiking, but I've spoken to to the ICE exchange and, and MIAX, which is the Miami exchange, and, and, and a few others. Um, and and uh, there's just been no uptake. One person actually told me at one of these exchanges, I can't remember which one, said, well, it's just, just what's, what's the big idea? What's, the, what's unique about this? And it was just sort of, it was funny because the argument was, well, this is too pedestrian. It's too easy. So... Whereas other people said, you know, there won't be any volume in it because it's too complex. And um, it just showed that I was not very good at selling, selling the, uh, the point. It needs to happen because what is next after this? If we list these contracts and we start to get, you know, and, it, and we have the liquidity effects that I think would, I believe, are natural and would follow on getting these things listed. What is next is you would have a core CPI futures contract because core CPI is just CPI adjusted for mostly for energy and a little bit of, of food, but mostly energy. And so you could very easily, if you had a futures contract where you could trade these things, you could easily trade a, a, a CPI futures contract and a gasoline contract against a core inflation contract. And so you could get liquidity there. And by the way, you'd have some people who would prefer to trade core inflation and not be trading energy. So you'd have an additional source of demand there. You could also then branch out into other subcomponents of inflation. You could trade medical care uh, CPI futures. You could trade apparel CPI futures. I don't know if you'd want to trade apparel CPI futures, but you could. And you could put all of these subcomponents out there. And what that would allow you to do someday is to design your own inflation exposure. If you're more concerned about medical care than you know the small the small weight that it is in the CPI basket, and you're less or you're less concerned with tuition because you don't have any kids going to college, 
then you could weight your basket differently if there was a way to access those subcomponents. What I'm saying is the CPI futures contract, the broad CPI futures contract, is a very simple, transparent, low-risk way to do this with a very, very high payoff. It, it's, it baffles me why we have not been able to get this done. Uh, I think that people should not ask why, they should ask why not. This is one of the, the cases where we really should be asking why not. So, dear listener, help me. Help me and help other advisors defend your money by bringing out these instruments that will give us more tools so that we can do more things for investor clients of ours. And that's all. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry for the lengthy and passionate plea this is something which obviously I've been involved with for several decades now, and it is, uh, it is, it is a story with, with again, a, a tragic ending, a truly tragic ending um, in that where we are, and, and hopefully it's not the ending, but where the story sits now, it is a tragedy. Maybe it'll end up being a triumph, and there will be a, a great story that gets told on you know, CNN someday, who knows. Uh, but that's all for today's podcast. You can contact me. Uh, I'm inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com or at inflation underscore guy at Twitter. You can follow the blog at mikeashton.wordpress.com. Uh, we have the Inflation Guy app you can download in your, in your app store. And I'd love to hear, you know, I always would love to hear from you but I'd really love to hear from you on this topic. And in particular, if you, if you can think of a good way to advance this ball, I would, uh, I would love to hear about it. Most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.